0: TED Audio Collective.
1: Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until. That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case.
0: Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really?
1: The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now.
0: Canva.com, designed for work. Just letting you know, this episode discusses mental illness. Take care while listening. When I was a kid, it felt like my dad was obsessed with getting to the airport on time. It would start a week ahead of our flight, sometimes even more. On the day of the flight... If the taxi we'd scheduled for 4 a.m., already two hours earlier than needed, wasn't there by 3.59, he'd get really agitated. Then we'd always get there so early that nothing would be open yet. And so he'd start screaming at people, the folks who worked there, my mom. He was clearly in a lot of distress. And when you try to talk him down and explain it was okay, he'd brush you off. He was in the right, and we just couldn't see it. He did other things that felt similar. He'd always worry that he'd left the stove on or that he left the iron on. And my brother and I started checking these things when we were getting ready to go anywhere in hopes that my dad wouldn't worry if we took care of it. But it never helped. My dad's anxiety permeated a lot of things and caused a lot of chaos. As a kid, this was really hard on me. I was embarrassed all the time. Other people thought my family was strange. My friends didn't want to come over to my house to hang out. I didn't know anyone else who was like this, and it felt like there was something uniquely wrong with my family. Now I recognize my dad had a severe anxiety disorder. He never sought treatment for it. In the 1970s, no one talked about mental health, especially not men's mental health. And even today, the stigma and silence remains. As a doctor, I see this all the time. I regularly have patients who are clearly struggling with anxiety, but don't know it or have a hard time accepting that diagnosis. It's not surprising. Our whole lives, we receive messages about how mental illnesses aren't real illness. Why can't you just stop worrying? Don't be such a snowflake. Snowflake. He's just so unstable. She is crazy. 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 What do you need? A trigger trigger warning? A trigger warning? Why can't you just get it together? But I'm here to tell you that anyone with symptoms of mental illness is experiencing something that is as real as high blood pressure. And if you had high blood pressure, no one would tell you to just ignore it because it'll go away. That could lead to unnecessary suffering and perhaps injury to your heart or your kidneys. With high blood pressure and with mental health issues, ignoring problems risks making a lot of things worse. Today, we're talking about something we all experience from time to time, but can sometimes escalate to a medical condition, anxiety. Dr. Jen Gunter. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Body Stuff. Think about a time when you were feeling really anxious. What was making you feel that way? Maybe a big test or a serious conversation you had to have with someone important to you, or when you've had to drive at night during a rainstorm. How did that anxiety feel in your body? Did your heart start to race? Did you start to sweat? Anxiety isn't just happening in your mind. It's a full body reaction. So how does it all work? I called up Dr. Callie Cyrus. Fixing things, got things set up perfectly and they work. Just yeah, Jen, Jen and I are just technological masters now. <laughs> She's a psychiatrist in Washington, DC. I asked her to give me the basics. Yeah. So anxiety
1: is is generally, I would say, a form of fear or a form of worry. Either you are afraid that something is going to happen or you are just increasingly worried. You're kind of um, maybe apprehensive. You're not sure if something bad is going to happen. You are maybe overly focused on the expectation of some kind of outcome. Like you just can't stop thinking about something.
0: You know, one thing I sometimes hear... Is that, oh, well, you know, you should just just be less anxious or just try to be less anxious. But I mean, you know, that sounds like trying to say to someone, why don't you just have less high blood pressure or, you know, why don't you have just less abnormal cells in your uterus? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's, that's exactly the case. It's just that we don't think about feelings and emotions in that way. For some people, it's actually part of your genetic makeup um, or there was something in your environment where you were predisposed to so many circumstances where you, you were alert. And if you can't control your environment, you, you certainly can't control your genes. You can't just get rid of your anxiety just like yourselves or your high blood pressure.
0: Anxiety is a normal emotion that all humans experience, just like happiness, sadness, and anger. It turns out all feelings have purposes. Looking at evolution can give us some insight here. For example, joy and affection tie families together to create stronger bonds of support. Anxiety exists to keep us alive. It's part of our threat response system and anxiety and fear are closely related. Imagine thousands of years ago, you're out foraging for roots and berries. There's a rustling in the tall grass. You need a system in place to help you sort out if it's just the breeze or a lioness is on the prowl. Today, we have fewer lionesses to deal with, but we still have threats and anxiety helps us predict them and respond to them. So what's going on here? We have two main parts of our brain that are involved in anxiety, the limbic system and the cortex.
1: We have the limbic system, which is sort of thought of this old emotional system that helps
0: get us ready to fight a tiger. The limbic system is involved with our emotions and behavior among other things, especially when those emotional or behavioral responses have to occur quickly without applying reasoning or judgment to keep us alive, like our fight, flight, or freeze response, which is both a mental and physical reaction to a potential threat. And then we also have the third part,
1: which I'm just gonna call our cortex. And these are some of the more complicated parts of our brain when we think about how we reason or how we plan, where our judgment and where our motivation
0: comes from. The brain is complex and interconnected, and what's going on in one part of the brain is absolutely influencing the other parts.
1: So you're walking down the street and you see somebody walking towards you, maybe it's like a dark alley, and your amygdala is probably the first thing that goes off.
0: The amygdala is a little almond-shaped region in our limbic systems. It's the main fear processor in our brains
1: which is basically being activated when you see this guy walking towards you. So let's say your, your mind perceives this as fear. What ends up happening is that your amygdala will start sending signals to other parts of your brain, including the hypothalamus. And what will end up happening is this evolutionary system, the fight, fight, or freeze system will get triggered, which will help your body run or fight or freeze, which is stand still.
0: The amygdala sends out the distress signal, and it's received by the hypothalamus, another part of your limbic system. Then the hypothalamus relays that signal to the rest of your body. Your blood vessels will constrict so that in case you get
1: cut or stabbed or something like that, that you won't bleed out. Your um, digestive system will shut down because it's not time to pee and poop. Also, it's like it's time to save your glucose and, so you can fight in your lungs, your bronchioles will dilate so that you can let in as much oxygen as you can to get to your muscles in case you need to run. And also your heart rate increases so that you can pump more blood to your muscles.
0: So your limbic system is responding to the threat immediately with the fight, flight, or freeze system. At the same time, your cortex, the part of your brain that applies reason, is also trying to figure out the situation. I think about the cortex thinking, well, have you seen a face like this
1: before? It's at nighttime, have we ever encountered a situation with someone who's ever hurt us
0: in a position like that? You have two different systems running at the same time. And so much of your experience of anxiety depends on how these two systems work together. And so there are some ways in which the
1: amygdala can take over and you are afraid if you don't get processing from the cortex or some of these higher thinking of reasoning to tell you that you don't need to be afraid.
0: So it may not surprise you, considering my history, that I used to be very anxious about flying. As soon as I booked a ticket, I'd be nervous. I knew it wasn't rational. I knew that the chance of my plane falling out of the sky was astronomically low, but I couldn't stop worrying about it. My cortex and my limbic system were at war but eventually my cortex would rally the troops and I'd get on that plane. I'd be nervous, it would not be fun, but the whole thing didn't disrupt my life. But for some people, anxiety can be disruptive. They experience persistent, pervasive anxiety that gets in the way of their daily life or relationships. That's when it becomes an anxiety disorder. People who have anxiety disorders find that they will start feeling super anxious out of nowhere, or their anxiety is completely disproportionate to a situation.
1: Your body starts to respond as if it's fighting a tiger and activating this entire neurochemical response when it doesn't necessarily need to. When someone comes to me and is talking about how maybe the past couple weeks they just haven't been able to leave the house, every time they leave the house, they have a panic attack um, or someone comes to me and says for the past three months, you know, maybe I got COVID in December and I've been afraid to interact with anyone. I like to think that if you are experiencing the symptoms of anxiety, most days of the week for a prolonged time that is interfering with your daily functioning, then that's when it poses, um, the level of being a disorder to me.
0: There are many types of anxiety disorders, but generalized anxiety disorder is one of the most common. Its symptoms can be very unpleasant and disruptive.
1: Someone might be feeling restless or keyed up. They might be tired. You have trouble concentrating. You're also just kind of irritable, like things bother you. People aren't moving as fast as they need to. You just don't know why you're kind of cranky. Muscle tension. So for whatever reason, um, maybe your jaw's clench, or you find that your your teeth are clenched. Um, And then you also usually have some kind of sleep
0: disturbance. So you might have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. It can be incapacitating. Researchers have looked at people with anxiety disorders and found some specific differences in the structure and function of parts of their brains. Our brains have billions of interconnected neurons. It's like the motherboard of a computer, and it's incredibly complex. Networks of connected neurons are known as pathways or circuits. And the more times those pathways fire, the more likely they are to fire again. Think of those pathways as literal paths in a grassy field. The more often you use one path, the more tamped down the grass is, and the easier it is to walk. When you use one path all the time, what happens to the others? They start to overgrow and they get harder to use. So our brains are constantly changing and adapting to the signals we receive. This is known as neuroplasticity. And that's part of like the wonder of the brain, which
1: is that the circuits that get used and used and used, you know, so the amygdala to the hypothalamus or the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex in response to something that you're processing is a pathway that gets strengthened over and over and over again every time you respond in a certain
0: way. So in the brain of a person with generalized anxiety disorder, the amygdala becomes hyper-responsive and might even issue false alarms. Over time, anxiety can cause changes in the brain, essentially strengthening the areas involved with anxiety. This can become a feedback loop that can produce a lasting shift in brain structure and function. And so trying to undo
1: that is just not going to happen. you know that easily you really have to put in the
0: work to try to you know break that cycle. The good news is that our brains have an astounding ability to change. You know how I said I used to be really anxious about flying? A few years ago, I was on a flight to New Jersey, sitting next to a pilot who was on his way to his next job. We got to talking, and I told him how anxious I was about flying. Throughout the flight, every time there was a bump, I'd turn to him and ask if it was a big deal. Every bump felt huge to me but the pilot would chuckle and say, oh, that's nothing. He'd explain exactly what was happening. By the time the flight was over, I really understood a lot more of what was going on. And after that, each time I'd start to get anxious about flying, I'd remind myself of that conversation. I'd remember how it felt sitting next to that pilot, how safe he made me feel. I remembered that conversation again and again and again, every time I planned a trip, every time I got on a plane. And after a while, I didn't have to remember that conversation to feel comfortable flying. I created new neural pathways. After the break, we're going to talk about how coping with anxiety means understanding it, accepting it, and asking for help. All of that can mean wading through the stigma around mental illness, a stigma that has roots deep in history. I understand why my dad never got help for his anxiety. His generation's attitude about mental illness was, one, it's a sign of weakness, and two, it's a woman's problem. That stigma has been around for a long time.
2: It's one of those ways that men oppress women and have done for a very, very long time.
0: Professor Helen King is a brilliant classicist in the United Kingdom. She studies the history of Western medicine and has a particular interest in the ways misogyny is all tied up in it. I find her work totally fascinating. I might actually be her biggest fan. Well, you know, if we were in person, I would have you autograph my uh, disease of virgins and Hippocrates women. (laughs)
2: I had a moment of such excitement there that my microphone fell off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Professor King says you can trace the stigma about mental illness to outdated ideas of the female body. Historically, physicians were absolutely obsessed with the womb or the uterus. I'm always fascinated by, you know, reading, you know, older medical textbooks and why a man may have gout and maybe it wouldn't be what we'd accept today, but it fit with the model of the day. And for the woman, it's, oh, it's your uterus. Yeah, exactly. It's always your uterus. <laughs> the ancient Greeks blamed a lot of things on something that seems wacky to us now. The Wandering womb. So men's organs stay roughly
2: in the right place, except, you know, in obvious sexual situations where they move up and down a bit. But Plato actually says that. It's not even me being rude here, it's Plato. Um, Women are different because women have wombs, and wombs just wander. And sometimes they're seen almost as
0: animate. They're sort of like naughty animals, I guess, kind of wandering the body. (laughs)
2: Like they're looking for something, like they're a creature described as an animal inside an animal. In one Roman text,
0: this was also the time when doctors believed that the key to how your body worked was something called the four humors. I'm not talking about something that makes you laugh, it's the four fluids that physicians once thought made up the body yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. Before anyone knew about germs and genetics, people blamed everything on the humors. Got a cold or a pain in your hip, your humors are out of whack. Professor King says blood was the humor associated with women and their wombs. So most female maladies were blamed on a blood imbalance or her womb wandering around inside her body. It's all about the
2: blood getting stuck and it can cause disorders anywhere in the body you know man with a pain in his shoulder what have you been recently doing lifting and carrying woman with a pain in her shoulder ooh your womb's got stuck in your shoulder you know it's that sort of it's that sort of level it's all about the womb and the womb is all about retaining
0: blood collecting it pouring it out at the right time or not for much of the history of western medicine there wasn't any distinction between physical and mental health and when the womb was just a naughty little animal that wandered the body it was seen as an unstable organ and the women who had wombs were seen as unstable too so because
2: your because your womb's on the move all the time you you know you just can't really settle to anything so you're kind of naturally unstable oh she's crazy that's got an extremely long history
0: The idea of women as unstable, as made up of weaker stuff, was a very effective way to oppress women. Professor King told me about an example from the 16th century. A young woman named Anna isn't well, and her father is concerned. Anna is old enough to get married, and he's worried that her malady could affect her marriage prospects. She's
2: pale, she's got palpitations, She's got great difficulty breathing. She's got problems with her eating. Now, I mean, we might say, oh, look, let's look at this as possible anorexia. You know, she's not eating properly. Or we might say, what about these palpitations? This is some sort of nervous thing.
0: Anna's dad reaches out to a doctor for help, and they begin a correspondence. But as far as
2: they're concerned, it's to do with blood. It's because she's still a virgin. Her blood has got stuck in her body. And it can't go out because she's not open at the bottom. This disease is what's called the virgin's disease because she's a virgin.
0: If you look at Anna in context, I see a young girl going through puberty with a lot of pressure on her about getting married. Maybe she's anxious about getting married or, or not getting married. Marriage was not exactly a picnic for young women at that time.
2: Particularly if you had the experience of other members of your family women who'd been married and then died in childbirth, which obviously was a lot more common then than it is now. We don't always factor in when we look at the past. You know, examples from early modern Europe of people writing letters before, before they go into childbirth uh, in case they die, because it was a real risk. Right, Being a woman was a very dangerous thing to be. You can sort of see that someone like that of the age for marriage, it would be enough to make you
0: pretty anxious. But Anna's doctor makes a very typical diagnosis for the day with a typical treatment.
2: The cure, ideally, is to let the blood out. You can do it with marriage or you can do it with bloodletting. Lots of things that women have wrong with them, the answer is bloodletting. You know, if in doubt, there's always bloodletting.
0: Bloodletting, cutting a person open and draining some of their blood, was prescribed liberally to both men and women for a very long time. But it was most closely associated with female maladies. But then the ultimate
2: bloodletting is actually having a baby. So not only does your blood form the baby and feed the baby in utero, but then when you give birth, you also lose blood. So that cures you of anything that's been built up for for a long time in your body. So often you find in the ancient Greek texts, if she gets pregnant, she will be healthy.
0: It's hard for me to ignore the fact that for Anna, the cure is either performing a painful, traumatic, and potentially dangerous bloodletting, or a possibly equally traumatic marriage and pregnancy. Professor King has seen that across thousands of years of medical history, over and over. Medicine was used to control women, because the idea was they needed to be controlled. Women are just, you know,
2: completely wild, and they have to be under the control of men, or they'll just be, go on being completely wild.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think if if you want to stay in power, then the greatest way to stay in power is to tell other people that you want to have power over, that they're... You know, they're crazy or Ooh. stupid or wrong or less intelligent. That persistent idea that women were crazy or unstable or less intelligent, it helped set the stage for a complementary idea to emerge that mental illness was feminine. The prime example is hysteria, a diagnosis that came into vogue in the 17th century. Hysteria was an emotional affliction caused by the womb. That's why it was named after the Greek word for uterus, hystera. It supposedly caused everything from anxiety to sexual deviance to fluid retention. At the same time, the idea that the mind and body were distinct had started to take root, which meant medicine was talking about mental illness as something separate from physical illness. And physicians began to think of hysteria as a problem with the brain, rather than just the womb. That opened the possibility that men could be hysterical too. For a time, some doctors used male hysteria as a diagnosis in men who had PTSD-like symptoms after experiencing battle.
2: It's fascinating. The idea was that the sorts of reactions men with shell shock had were very similar to what they expected a woman with hysteria to have. So they called it male hysteria. But it didn't catch on as a name because you can't use the word hysteria of a man because you know, it's not manly, is it? So it became shell shock, which sounds nice and manly. Good, hard consonant shock.
0: Wow, that's fascinating.
2: It is extraordinary, isn't it? But it's basically feminizing them. It's saying that some sorts of bodily reactions are not appropriate to proper men. And if you've been told all the time that you can't possibly have a mental illness because that's a feminine thing, you won't seek treatment.
0: I think we still see this kind of stigma today. I definitely saw that with my dad. And I want to acknowledge that this isn't just about misogyny. It's also about homophobia, and it hurts all of us. It stigmatizes a lot of people who are struggling and keeps them from getting help. I think the way around all of this is a deeper understanding of what mental illness is. And since we're talking about anxiety disorders, let's start there. It's true that some people are more vulnerable to anxiety disorders than others, but it has nothing to do with being feminine or weak. There's complex biology at play. In the past few decades, we've come to understand how what happens when we're kids can affect our health as adults. Researchers have identified a set of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, that correlate with higher levels of mental illness later in life, and also physical problems like heart disease and diabetes. And so the
1: ACEs, at least that they categorize, are things like being physically, sexually, or emotionally abused, being emotionally or physically neglected. That's psychiatrist Dr. Callie Cyrus having an addicted parent, having a, a parent who was depressed or had some other kind of mental health condition, having a separation of your parents, uh, having someone who
0: is a, a parent who was incarcerated. ACES can rewire a young person's brain in the same way that we talked about earlier. The more often a path is walked, the more defined that path becomes. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you were raised in a household where you were frequently exposed to abuse, your reaction and exposure to
1: these events shaped your brain circuitry. And so if you think about at least the conversations that we've been having about how often you your amygdala witnesses something that it signals as fear and how often then your um, hypothalamus and other parts of your brain activate that fight flight, um, or freeze response, how that over and over and over again for years then impacts you as an adult when your circumstances may have changed and how you can have anxiety because this system is going off constantly when it doesn't necessarily need to and it's also
0: dysregulated. So when the fight, flight or freeze response is repeatedly activated, it creates a ripple effect in your body. And so if you think about your
1: heart rate going up, your bronchioles and your lungs are being expanded to bring in more air. All of these processes happen in your body over time and just sit there, right? So usually if you're gonna fight, you're gonna use those resources up. You're gonna use that oxygen. You're gonna use that glucose. But imagine if it just continually gets activated and you don't actually
0: need to fight, right? What that does to your body. Over time, All of this can disrupt the development of brain architecture and other organ systems. There are other legacies of ACEs. Children may develop behaviors formed in reaction to those adverse experiences. They might use less helpful coping strategies like shutting down or lashing out when there's a conflict or working extremely hard to keep people around them calm in order to avoid any conflict. You can imagine if
1: you were typically the kind of child who yelled or you shut down or you tried to please everyone and that got you out of trouble as a child over and over and over again until you were 18 and then you're out in the world, that's going to be your knee jerk because it worked. And so how do you undo you know, something that's been habituated for years and not just, I think, behaviorally in terms of like, oh, my go-to is to respond in this way. But I mean, also neurochemically, those pathways in your brain are solidified, you know, from the moment you started doing that as a child.
0: These experiences have long-term impacts over a person's life. An adult who experienced ACEs as a child is more likely to have asthma, kidney disease, stroke. They could even be more likely to experience earlier menopause. And these impacts can be magnified over generations. Some things can help prevent ACEs from having a long-term impact. For example, having a loving, supportive relationship with an important adult can be a buffer. The National Institute of Mental Health says that more than 30% of Americans will experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. So what is the path forward for so many people who live with one? One of the first steps in managing an anxiety disorder is getting diagnosed. It's okay if you have
1: severe anxiety is just acknowledge it. Um, But I think that we, main treatments are in terms of medications, but also in terms of therapy and typically, and also the research suggests that doing these things in combination is more
0: effective than doing one or the other. Let's start with talk therapy. One of the kinds of talk therapy that can be extremely effective for anxiety is CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT helps you learn to tamp down your fight, flight, or freeze response. You are really just talking through what patients' personal experiences
1: are in these stressful situations step by step and really trying to um, help them understand how their emotions are connected to their body response and how all of that is stored in our brain so that the next time we experience it, we have the same kind of reaction. So how do you intervene? How do you take yourself off of that loop in a way that is actually helpful? So it's really powerful, actually, that, you know, a talking form of therapy can do all this.
0: It can be hard for people to imagine that a problem so overwhelming could be helped by something that seems as inconsequential as talking. But this is a structured process that's been scientifically proven to help establish and strengthen new pathways in the brain. The stronger those pathways become, the more likely you are to react to triggers in that new, more productive way. Medications can also be incredibly helpful. Some prescriptions help change the way the neurons in your brain are firing. The medications that we we think about are the ones that are triggering the
1: neurochemicals that are involved in some of these um neuro processes that we've been we've been talking about so you take a medication and it tries to change the ratios in which they are released will help to signal to the amygdala to tell the hypothalamus to
0: turn on or turn off dr cyrus says it can take up to a month for medications like this to start working But there are also options that help people who need to calm down in a moment of panic, and they help a lot of people. Medications get a bad rap. There's a lot of stigma and misinformation, but working with a qualified mental health professional you trust is a great way to explore your options. The basic health things work too. Good nutrition, plenty of sleep, and exercise and many people find meditation helpful as well. Meditation dampens the fight, flight, freeze system and promotes an alternate relaxation response, slowing down the heart rate and breathing. There's an elephant in the room that I want to acknowledge. It can be incredibly hard to access mental health care. It can be difficult to find someone who is taking patients. And if you do find someone, it can be prohibitively expensive. This lack of access, plus the stigma we've been talking about. Well, you can understand why people don't get the care they need. This has to change. Until it does, people will keep suffering. When I got to medical school and figured out that my dad had an anxiety disorder, it was a relief. It was powerful to finally have a diagnosis, to learn that my family wasn't uniquely broken. Sometimes I think about how my life would have been different had my dad gotten a diagnosis earlier and received help with his anxiety disorder. I think of all the chaos, the yelling and the screaming. Maybe it could have all have been avoided. And most of all, maybe my dad would have suffered less. I think this is really the point. Conversations about mental health are just conversations about health. Period. Next week on body stuff. Sometimes your body just needs to be cleaned out with a detox or cleanse. Right?
1: The only thing these
2: cleanses and detox remove from your body is your money.
0: We take on a myth that's stuck around for centuries and introduce you to your most mysterious organ, the liver. Body Stuff is a member of the TED Audio Collective. It's hosted by me, Dr. Jen Gunter, and brought to you by TED and Transmitter Media. This episode was produced by Lacey Roberts and edited by Sarah Nix. The rest of the team includes Camille Peterson, Alice Wilder, Greta Cohn, Michelle Quint, Ban Ban Chang, and Roxanne Hilash. Alex Overington is our sound designer and mix engineer. Christiana Parda and Nirja Aravindan are our fact checkers. And special thanks to that sweet old lady in the church choir who I know has since passed away, who knew that my parents were really weird and took me under her wing. We're back next week with more body stuff. Make sure you follow body stuff in your favorite podcast app. So you get every episode delivered straight to your device and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners. See you next week.